Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Eric Kim has traveled all over the world as a recitalist, chamber musician, and soloist with orchestras. In 2009, he joined the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music as professor of cello. And prior to that, he served as principal cello of the Cincinnati Symphony for 20 years and has also held principal positions with the San Diego and Denver Symphonies. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. It's my pleasure. Nice to be here, Joel. You've had an impressive career. Is this what you imagined when you decided to pursue music? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to really know what you're capable of doing and what the outcome is going to be based on how much work you put in. I think success in music has a lot to do, obviously, with talent and work ethic, but Getting close ties to the right people certainly helped, and I think I was able to connect with the quote-unquote right people along the way, so I feel very fortunate to have had the, the varied career that I've had, actually. You sat principal in three orchestras, is that correct? Yes, I, and actually while I was in college, I was kind of a an acting third principal of the New York City Ballet Orchestra. I wasn't in an official capacity, it was a substitute role, but it was something where I was brought in many times last second to play principal, mainly because they were unsure of certain personnel that were going to show up. And so sometimes I would have to show up 20 minutes before the show started and almost sight read solos and just kind of sit down with the music director. So that was one of the greatest experiences as far as a learning experience goes. Trial by fire. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> crapping in your pants along the way, too. I think that's a good motivator. So you played 20 seasons as principal in Cincinnati. I did. What motivated you to leave the orchestra world and make the leap to a full-time teaching position? Well, it's an interesting thing because Indiana had asked me probably three or four years before I left the orchestra to join the faculty. And I wasn't quite ready to leave the orchestra world at that point. And I just told them that I would teach adjunct and see how it felt. It was really invigorating, actually. I think what happens over the, the course of time, Joel, is that you get very comfortable with what you're doing and all the benefits of the life that playing in a fine orchestra gives you. But teaching and giving my time to young people really felt like it was something that was missing in my life on a regular basis. The closer I got to thinking about the prospect of leaving, my wife was thinking about a change in her career. And right about the 20-year mark when I would be finished with Cincinnati was when she was going to get her master's in social work because she wanted to help people, which is a very noble profession. I just kind of put two in together and thought, okay, in my 18th year, two more years would be perfect. Luckily, I was 44 when I was leaving the orchestra. So I was at an age where I felt I could have a completely new career. Mm -hmm. What do you miss about it? Uh, not a lot, <laughs> 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 to be honest with you. I miss the repertoire. I love 
playing um, consistently in that lush ensemble feel. I miss a lot of my friends. It's hard to spend 20 years doing something where you didn't feel gratified with it. Um, it was such a wonderful experience and afforded so many things in my life, both financially as well as spiritually. But it was time to move on yeah. and start a new life, especially with my wife starting a new career as well. Well, you have a stellar reputation when it comes to the best cello teachers at the college level. I've asked so many people about you, and everybody has really positive things to say about their experience working with you. And on episode four, we interviewed Rainer Eudikus, one of your former students, and he talked about how you were such a positive influence on him wanting to pursue being a principal cellist. So when you have a student like that, would you say that you could see that when he was studying with you? Or what would you say your experiences with students at that age versus where they end up and what you're able to pick up on along the way? Right. That's a good question, Joel, just because I guess I just finished my 12th year doing this full time now. So it's at a point where I've passed the hundreds of students mark to kind of look to see what people are doing now. I'm most happy to say that they're all good people. And regardless of whether they're playing in orchestra or playing chair music or even in music, I feel fortunate I've been connected to people who are actually just good basic people. And I think something I could allude to as far as that goes in choosing students is that I'm not always looking for the most talented per se. I'm looking at having a relationship with someone where both of us grow together. I think it's really important to find people that you connect with because you don't have to say as much to get your point across. I think there's a general understanding personality-wise that helps quite a bit. As far as Rainer goes, I mean, Rainer obviously being principal in Atlanta, that's a big job. And that takes a lot of will and determination to get to that level. He did his master's with me here at Indiana. Mm -hmm. I did see that he was special, and I knew him several years prior meeting him in Aspen. I think yeah. he was even a teenager back then. But you do recognize that the talent is there, you see the determination, and you hope that they'll find a way to make it work. And Rainer did, obviously. Yeah, and I think as teachers, I've noticed this too, because I teach a lot of high school students, and you end up helping them in more ways than just on the cello being good people and understanding Absolutely. what's expected and what's appropriate. It is great to be able to share that kind of a role with the right kind of student that's receptive to other things also. Absolutely. Absolutely. And teaching at a public university like Indiana University versus teaching at a conservatory, I think your expectations as a student and as a teacher are different. I don't encourage the conservatory type setting unless they're thriving. That type of, I'm going to lock myself in a room for 10 hours and I'm going to compare myself to everyone and that's how I'm going to live on a daily basis. I think a university like ours affords people to have such a, a wide variety of um, experiences that I don't encourage that they eat, drink, and cello all the time unless that that's what they want to do. As I said earlier, I'm not looking necessarily to work with only the most talented, but those who are the most interested in being better. When I say being better, I'm not saying only on the cello or musically, but I like cooking a lot. So that's one of the things that I throw studio parties and I cook for the kids and things like that. 
And a lot of times, you know, when they graduate, they say, well, thank you so much. I, now I know what a mole is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know what an East Carolina barbecue sauce because of that pulled pork you made a few years ago, things like that. I'm happy to share those experiences in my life with these guys because I'm hoping that as they grow older, that they can do the same eventually. What is the vehicle you use then to determine who would be the right fit? It's a requisite for me to meet with the student at the very least for a certain amount of time, much less have a lesson with them before I consider having them accepted into the studio. And I didn't do that initially because, uh, quite frankly, I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. But as the years went on, I realized that the chemistry has a lot to do with how easy it is to connect with someone musically as well. That slowly became something where I noticed certain personality traits, work ethic traits in a lesson setting. I'm sure as a teacher, you know this, Joel, one of the more annoying things that happens in lessons is that before you're finished explaining what you're saying, they start playing. Right. <laughs> right. So that's one of those things where I like, okay, I, I love the verve and the excitement and wanting to do better, but there has to be the patience there to understand what you're saying before you do it too. Yep. It's finding all of those things in balance that's important to me. Does that mean then that all the students that come take an audition and put you down as the teacher that they want to study with, that they have either had a trial lesson with you ahead of time, or do you set that up afterwards if they haven't? Uh, that's a good question. There's a process where I, maybe every faculty member does something slightly different. I personally, if I see their name on the list and... I would say more often than not, they'll contact me before for a lesson, before they even show up for the audition. I mean, this is all pre-pandemic, obviously. Right. But sometimes I was giving lessons online if they weren't able to travel here, just so I got a feel for them. If they do put me down first, then I'll reach out to them if I feel like there might be some sort of connection. Because sometimes people don't know any better about establishing that connection. I find sometimes the teachers don't actually encourage their students to reach out ahead of time to have a trial lesson. Yeah, and some people charge an exorbitant fee. And it makes it really hard for other people. <laughs> I don't find that my fee is exorbitant. And I have a deal. And this is something that I'll always do is that I do charge a fee, a lesson fee. But I tell them if they're accepted into the studio and they attend in the fall, that they get their feedback. Oh, so it's, fair. it's kind of like a yeah, it's kind of like a trial for both of us. If they don't wind up coming, then it's hopefully they got it something out of that hour. Or And good luck to wherever you're going, Yeah, because it works both ways that either they chose to go into a different school or, unfortunately, I didn't have room in my studio. Right. And then what about, do you like to hear students close to the audition or in their junior year? Is that a better time? How much growth do you want to see? I think the junior year lesson is always a good thing because then I can hear them again pre-audition. The problem with having a lesson the day before the day of your audition is that I don't want you to remember any of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I told, tell them, they come in the studio, I'm like, okay, so everything coming out of my mouth right now, forget until the day after your audition. Because they prepare all this time, they have this mindset and what they're going to do. And I'm like, go with that. Project what you've been practicing. And then everything we talk about changing 
think about it the day after. In that sense, I think the junior lesson is a good idea because then I can see how they involved in that year. But then from senior year in high school to freshman year in college, there's even a bigger change I find a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting just to see that progression in those two years. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying then is having a lesson with a student the day before and then trying to make a bunch of changes to impress upon you in the audition is just too much for somebody to manage in 24 hours time. Yeah. I would never expect that type of progress from anyone. Yeah. I think it's just too much to expect. Yeah. So when you sit down for the auditions, what are some of the most common deficiencies that you see in the students in auditions? I can't say that I can bulk everything into one thing. I will say one general thing is that I don't think people teach that the bow is 99% playing the instrument. That's my philosophy. That's not maybe everyone's philosophy, but intonation is left hand. Shifting is partially left hand. But what you hear is the right hand. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not making a good sound, then you're not actually actually procuring good technique in the right side. And so I'd like to say that one of my mantras is making sure that the awareness of the bow arm, the bow hand, the fingers, that the priority of the right side is equally important or even more important than the left side. Yeah, and if you play everything really well, with your left hand, but you have a terrible sound. Nobody wants to listen to it. So what's the point? You have a terrible <laughs> sound or you have one sound, meaning the intonation's fine, but there's no variety in the sound. Frankly, I'd rather hear something slightly out of tune that's got life in it. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. But being on air, I don't want to say I want to listen to out of tune either. <laughs> I agree <laughs> with you there. <laughs> Lots <Yeah>. of scales. <laughs> exactly. Scales and popper. Yep. So as students are preparing to go back to school this fall, how does the audition process work at Indiana for placement in orchestras? Well, it's maybe similar than other places. I would say the, the oddity of our school is that there are five orchestras because the school is so big. So... We generally have two or three faculty, I would say usually two of the faculty, hopefully cello faculty, listening to the students blind behind the screen. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for argument's sake, that there's generally 56 people taking the audition. What we'll do is come up with a list probably in the next week or so that we send out to all the students at the same time so there's no advantage. Just to clarify, when you say the next week or two, what date are we talking We're about? probably talking about mid-June. Okay. Uh, mid-June. Because this will air in August. Right. Okay. <laughs> so yes. I have that okay. clear. That's fine. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's June 3rd. So, in the okay. next couple of weeks, we'll compile a list of, let's say, three excerpts from the repertoire that's going to be played in one of the orchestras, one of the five orchestras in the coming year. Usually we have standard things such as Mendelssohn Scherzo, Beethoven Five, La Mer. Those are some kind of biennial excerpts that we hear, Brahms too. <laughs> because they're the five orchestras, the top 10 will pass on still blind to we call them callbacks, which is essentially finals because we need first stands that are fixed in the five orchestras. And we have the big orchestra, which is Philharmonic. And then we have the second orchestra, which is chamber orchestra. And then we have the three other orchestras 
can tell you the names of them, but they really, it's inconsequential. And we choose the principles based on the style of their playing. We'd rather have someone who is a much cleaner, finesse player, who sounds like they have leadership qualities for chamber versus philharmonic, which can be a much bigger player, bigger personality. And then we choose the principles that way. And what we do is add on a solo excerpt. Let's say William Tell we've had recently, Brahms Second Piano Concerto, things like that, so we can hear them in a solo role in addition to those three chosen section excerpts. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do they play any of their own solo repertoire to warm up? Based on the numbers, we don't do solo repertoire. And in a way, I kind of like it. It's just, you just have everyone play the exact same thing. You, you bring them in, you, they leave, and you can compare them back to back very quickly. Have you seen some crazy changes in seatings over the years with players that have surprising audition results? Yeah, it's not unlike the professional level when people are taking auditions that I have found over the years that some people love a screen. Like some people just don't like being watched while they play. And that, that can be their recitals and audition. As we well know, the parameters for an audition are well different than playing in a recital. So preparation is slightly different that way also. But yeah, sometimes I find that someone plays a great audition behind a screen and then maybe I'll hear them in rep class and it it's not nearly as good because other people are watching and hearing them play. Yeah. So More nerves. Uh, it's based on the personality, obviously. So what advice would you give to these students to help them perform at their best? In general or for orchestra or? I would say specifically for this orchestra, getting ready to audition. Because all the kids are going to be getting ready for school and most people are playing in orchestras and are going to have to do a similar process. So I wanted to give people some different perspectives from different schools in the process. But I think generally we're talking about the same thing. Sure. And I don't think the instrument has anything to do with it. I think preparation for an orchestra audition should be the same, whether it's a tuba or a violin. Mm -hmm. You know, I always encourage all of my students when they prepare for an orchestra audition to have as much variety in your practice time as possible. And what I mean by that is choose different size rooms don't play in the same space all the time. Don't play on the same chair all the time. Play on different heights, chair to be comfortable with that. Play in different temperature rooms. Basically, put yourself in a different scenario as much as possible. The constant is the repertoire, not your surroundings. Because it's the surroundings that will throw you off more than the repertoire. If you practice the repertoire precisely and carefully, that's going to be your repetitive nature. Don't let the size of the room affect you. Don't let the temperature throw you. Don't let the height of the chair, all of those things, I think you can actually eliminate by adding more variety to your practice space. Yeah, I guess like waking yourself up at three o'clock in the morning and suddenly trying to play an excerpt. Sure. <laughs> also. Mm -hmm. How about the actual preparation of the excerpts? What sort of advice do you give to your students and how to learn the repertoire? What tools do you give them for learning the repertoire appropriately? Yeah. So this is fairly typical. I'd say, Joel, that a lot of times, even the most talented kids, unless they had instruction with excerpts that they have no idea what a committee is listening for with these excerpts. I've run into several colleagues over the years and 
people say, well, I can teach excerpts. You know, I'm a good musician. Why can't I teach excerpts? I'm like, yeah, you are a great musician. You probably in the right setting are offering a lot of great knowledge about these excerpts. But unfortunately, as we well know, a committee is listening for a specific thing or a few specific things per excerpt. We ask for these excerpts because they have red flags that we're listening for, right? Yeah. So some of them are intonation. Some of them are shift related, like Verity Requiem. Some like La Mer, we're listening to bow stroke, making sure the pitch doesn't go high. Always good rhythm. I tell my kids, listen, the number one thing when you play music is rhythm, period. He said, unless you plan on playing music by yourself in a room for the rest of your life and you don't plan on playing with anyone, that's okay. But the second you start playing with someone else, you have to have good rhythm. So that's the first thing I stress. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I'm like, kind of everything else is a close second. Everything else. (laughs) Everything else. Sound, intonation, dynamics. Well, dynamics sometimes might be a slight more of an edge because it shows greater knowledge of the score a lot of the time. Uh Uh-huh. That's one of the few things I think can give the indicator. But really, I would say just having some sort of knowledge about what is asked for in each of the excerpts. Isn't it funny, Joel, after all of these years and how many times the second movement of Beethoven 5, the theme and first two variations is asked, why is that so damn hard? I'm still asking myself (laughs) the same question, Yeah, I mean, I get people playing that for me all the time. They're like, I just... How can eight bars be so difficult? Well, you know what? That's why it's still there. Yeah. And there are tricks and people like change the bowing to mask the fingerings and vice versa. I'm like, well, Beethoven wrote a slur here. So I think we should do a slur here. Yeah. I'm not of the ilk that we change a bunch of bowings to mask things if we can play it well the way the composer wrote it first. Yeah, and somehow that excerpt just shows so much. Oh, yeah. It shows so great quickly. bow control and shifting like no other, along with the rhythm. That's why it's always there. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> what about listening to recordings and getting yourself familiar with the repertoire ahead of a specific audition like that? When you listen to all the recordings, there's so many, there's different interpretations, different tempos. So how do you encourage your students to find a balance that works the best for an audition like this one? Yeah, another very good question, because if you've never heard these excerpts before and then you took five recordings and you said, "Okay, I'm going to take note of what each of these five recordings did tempo wise, timing wise, dynamic wise. Maybe that's the ideal thing to do just to get the averages of everything and give you an idea. Another good thing is to understand that certain conductors like certain tempi. Mm-hmm. So David Zinman likes faster tempi in Beethoven. Bernstein always liked slower tempi, especially in Brahms. Things like that. Unfortunately, it takes knowledge to choose recordings to get what you're trying to get from the recording. I was alluding to the fact that you you actually, if you don't know what the conductor is famous for in these pieces, then you're not actually finding all of the knowledge you need from a generic recording. So sometimes I find that it's best to get recordings where people aren't the most famous that are trying to make their mark on something. 
I find that conductors who try to reinvent the wheel oftentimes take the most extreme tempi and timings. So sometimes just kind of going for middle of the road gives you a good sense of what's a nice average. Also, students have no excuse these days because they have access to everything that we didn't have when we were taking auditions. They have access to the music. They have access to the recordings. There's just so many places that you can find it. and The scores? Yeah, and get so much more information than we could get back. Because I've been 22 years in the Atlanta Symphony. I know what it feels like to be in one place for 20 plus years. It's, It's kind of amazing, actually. Absolutely. So the scores, that's something else that's really important, Joel. If you want to get ahead taking an audition, you need to know what's going on around you all the time. And I think a lot of the time people get so centric on just learning the notes and how they sound that they're not aware of what their sound should be like sometimes based on what's happening around them. So I would say that's kind of like the last layer that separates the really best from the very good. Yeah, that's really important advice, I think, and not enough people talk about that, understanding we can get so myopic in what we're doing because of the challenges on our own instrument. Absolutely. Well, is there any other advice that you would like to offer to our audience? I would just say, I mean, I have a lot of specific things that we could talk hours about if you're talking about playing the cello. In a general sense, you got to love it more than anything if you're going to go into it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense for someone who's good at it, that really likes it and loves it a lot of the time to go into it when there are people who are better that love it more than you do that are going to get the jobs that you're trying to get. Yeah. So that's kind of the general advice I would say to any performing musician is that if you have doubt, it's probably not a good thing. Doug Summer used to say, if you love the idea of doing anything else, you probably should do that <laughs> because it's so yeah. hard and competitive to be successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, any type of doubt, I just kind of say, are there physicians in your household? <laughs> I've had a lot of doctors over the years, which I'm actually quite happy about. Yeah. That came through the studio and are very successful because they're smart And it's amazing how the medical field loves musicians because of the discipline. So if anything, I think music teaches great discipline, which is fantastic. Yeah. But as far as getting a job and having a life in music as a performer, you have to go above and beyond, obviously. Right. And just to clarify, all of your studio are performance majors? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And how big is your studio on average for a year? Um, My studio can go anywhere from 14 to 18. Okay. I think I have 17 coming back. And do you have any social media presence where people can find you? You know, it's funny because I was down, I'm kind of the anti-social media, Joel. You're not the only one. I've, I've <laughs> done this many times and many musicians, they have no social media presence. So it's, that's why I keep asking. Yeah. I mean, I don't even have a Facebook account. Okay. <laughs> because I just didn't ever want to go down. I was like, I've got enough on my plate that I don't want to surf on my phone for hours a day looking at friends. And people would say, well, don't you want to have all these people that you knew when you were younger wishing you a happy birthday? I'm like, there's a reason why I'm not in touch with them right now. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason why the 25 people I hear from that I care about are the ones that wish me happy birthday. Yeah. And you haven't found that you need to use social media in any way to get the word out about yourself because your reputation has sort of built upon itself. 
You know, I guess that's kind of an ego thing too. You want to feel that the success that you've had with other students or the playing in your career. I mean, I don't market anything on YouTube either. People find recordings here and there, but I don't put anything out there. I'm kind of old school that way. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to find you though, what's their best way to locate you and reach out to you? They could just email me. Okay. And that would just be through Indiana, I assume? Yeah. It's on the website. And so people email me all the time that way. People talk about, well, you can have a students of Facebook group and things like that. And that would be all great. I just wouldn't curate something like that. Mm -hmm. But eventually, I mean, social media is such a huge tool these days. I wouldn't do it to recruit, but I would love to do it to keep my students in touch with each other over the years. Yeah, and I do think a lot of students coming out today are building their own websites. That's certainly something that they're doing a lot more of to promote themselves. Because you sort of have to these days to get the message out and have people know about you. Yeah, I guess. I'll take a, a live performance over a website any day. Yeah. It's true. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Uh, Joel, it's my pleasure to finally meet you since we've had so many connections over the years. And I think you're doing a wonderful thing, uh, reaching out to your audience and providing a lot of information that's not out there. Thank you. So I wish you the best. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview Icelandic-American cellist Sayun Thorsen's daughter, professor of cello and chamber music at the University of Washington, Seattle. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Be sure and subscribe to the Cello Sherpa podcast so you'll be notified when our next episode posts. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Joel Dallow.